everyone and welcome to another Scotswahey podcast and it's the third of our Bloody Scotland podcasts and this time round we're going to be talking about the McIlvany Prize for the Scottish Crime Book of the Year because at the moment I'm joined by three of the shortlisted finalists, Callum McSorley, hello Callum. Hiya. Uh, Robbie Morrison, hello Robbie. Hi Alistair, Callum and, and Craig. Craig Russell. <laughs> yes and Craig as well, how are you Craig? <laughs> Hi, Alistair. Um, well, first of all, congratulations to uh, uh, all of you. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank uh, you. And I should let uh, listeners know that I will be talking to Denise Miner, who's the fourth finalist. Uh, so don't hang up once we've finished talking, because there is more after that. But first of all, before we talk about the prize and talk about Bloody Scotland and go into further detail, I think it'd be a good idea if you could give us a brief synopsis of your shortlisted novels. Callum, I know you've done this before for us, but could you give us a brief synopsis of Squeaky Clean? So Squeaky Clean is set in a car wash in the East End and is about Davy who works there. And uh, one day to get to a court date on time, he borrows a customer's car. And uh, on the way there, he gets carjacked and the car's destroyed. Uh, and unfortunately for him, it turns out that this car belongs to a dangerous gangster called Paolo, and he now owes him a lot of money. And uh, potentially helping Davy out is a detective called Ali McCoist, who is uh, something of a bungler and is trying to kind of find a way to redemption. And that's a very interesting choice, which I think we'll talk about uh, uh, more later. And I was, it is set, it's contemporary Glasgow, isn't it? That's what I said. But yeah, you said yeah, pre-COVID. Yeah, I started it pre-COVID and no, I finished it after COVID. I didn't really want to, to get involved in that. <laughs> I think that's probably uh, quite right. And Robbie, Edge of the Grave, what can you tell us about that? Uh, Edge of the Grave is the my second novel in the Jimmy Dreghorn, Inspector Jimmy Dreghorn series. It's set in 1933 Glasgow and opens with the discovery of a body on a narrowboat on the Forth and Clyde Canal, which is very quickly discovered by another discovery of another body, both shot through the head execution style. And as... Uh, Jimmy Dreghorn and his sergeant, Bonnie Archie McDade, investigate. They discover that both of the corpses were ex-black and tans who were uh, members of a so-called peacekeeping force sent into Ireland during the uh, War of Independence. Um, while they're involved in that ex uh, investigation, it also transpires that there's a, um, a rumoured IRA cell operating embedded in the, the some of the sectarian gangs in Glasgow at the time. And they're also pursuing uh, stolen explosives, which have been um, uh, stolen from a colliery for presumably for use in a sabotage campaign. Um, and things get more complex and more dangerous. And our, uh, our detectives find themselves in the middle of uh, the IRA and special branch and basically trying to do what's right whereas while you know and stay alive towards the end of it and it's interesting because although it's set back in the day in glasgow there's still echoes of that uh, time today you know there's still certain things that you uh, which are mentioned which uh, people will be able to recognize today definitely particularly if you're from glasgow oh yeah no, i'd like to think so yeah yeah i mean it's obviously the the whole sectarian thing is has calmed down from there but, you know, I'd like to think it's 
you know, people don't change, even though the times are different, but people themselves and their motivations and their, their compassion, their cruelty, uh, I think people pretty much stay the same. And I think Glasgow is, while the city is very different from the 1930s, it's, there, there's a great deal of recognisable uh, elements are still there, even though I think what strikes me most often when I've been doing the research is just the amount of, you know, the amount of architecture that's been lost, mm. uh, just you know, knocked down in the 50s and 60s by the, you know, the, the corporation or, or whoever was in charge at the time and their wisdom. But um, just alone and uh, cast a cold eye, you, you discover that the, um, the Duke State Prison's gone, completely knocked down. Is the oh I've just I've suddenly just forgotten the name of the hotel actually um oh, the, the St Enoch's Hotel sorry that's yeah. the one which again was modelled on St Pancras Hotel in London where it was a beautiful building but was obviously knocked down in the seventies and replaced no offence to the architects by a fairly mundane shopping centre and you know it's it's just and even. Even the police station that Dreghorn and McDade operate out of, which is in Turnbull Street, just across from St Andrew's Church and St Andrew's yeah. Square, is, you know, as far as I can aware, it's been derelict for as long as, you know, probably a decade or more now. And it just looks as though, as is usual, they're just letting it crumble to the point of, oh, it's, it's you know, it's a danger to safety now. We'll have to knock it down. So it's, yeah, it seems it's quite scandalous that obviously... The city for a city that you know ostensibly cares so much about its history and talks so much about its past, it then seems to be the the visual representation representations of its past are just being washed away for, um, you know, in the in the pursuit of profit. I assume. Sorry, I'm getting all sort of. <laughs> I mean, we were and I'll change things. <laughs> we were actually having a chat about that uh, uh, before uh, you joined us, Robbie, and I think we'll talk about Glasgow as well as a setting, maybe later on. I think that's really interesting. But first, Craig, what can you tell us about the Devil's Playground? Because it's quite a different book. It is. Uh, a, a new departure for me as well. Uh, the Devil's Playground is set in uh, Golden Era Hollywood. Uh, 1927, just at that point uh, when silence were giving way to talkies, which was an absolutely massive cultural uh, shift. Uh, and it's about the uh, greatest horror movie ever made, also called The Devil's Playground, uh, which has uh, already got the reputation of being a cursed production. And then the uh, leading lady is is found dead under mysterious circumstances. Um, and Hollywood being Hollywood at that time, uh, it's the studio's fixer, not the police, uh, who is sent in to investigate this this uh, this death. Um, and it took, and as fixers did at the time, she covered up anything embarrassing to the studio. Um, unfortunately, she discovers that it wasn't suicide as they thought, but murder. So basically the studio and she has become, uh, you know, accessories after the fact. 
and she is then charged with getting to the truth um, as to what actually happened to Norma Carlton. Uh, but it also cuts to uh, the late 1960s and uh, a film historian trying to track down uh, the supposedly last surviving print of The Devil's Playground. Yeah, and it's uh, such an interesting idea um, and, and the way that you it develops uh, is fascinating. Let's start with the, the list. It's interesting to have the mix, you mix because we've got a former debut prize winner. Is that right, Robbie? Yeah, I won the debut prize with my first novel, Edge of the Grave. Yeah, and Craig, you've won the McIlvany Prize previously, twice, I think. I, I have, yes, twice, yeah. And Callum, we spoke to you about being on the debut prize shortlist, and now mm. you're going for the double, the double yeah. by being on the McIlvany Prize. Let's start with you, Callum. What does it mean to be shortlisted on this prize? Uh, it's it's crazy. It's quite surreal. Like, I think seeing the long list and um, seeing all these, you know, big, big names, um, I just, yeah, I didn't really think I would get to to the final four, to be honest with you. It was, you know, yeah. I think it was a really impressive uh, long list. I think you're right. Sure, Robert, yeah. yourself, what does it mean to you? Um, well, it's my second nomination. Well, it's my second nomination for my second novel. So it's probably all downhill, downhill from now, isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's great, and it's great to be. It's great to be you know, listed along with three great writers and stuff. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm delighted. In fact, I'm I'm going for a festival haircut straight after this. <laughs> uh, haircut, get my some Botox, get my lips done. I'll, I'll I'll be looking like Ken from Barbie by the time the 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 award ceremony starts. So we can have a before and after picture. We've got to here now and see what it's like. Uh, and and Craig, I still don't think it'll make me look any better. <laughs> and Craig, what does it mean to you? And practically, what does it mean when you've won it? Well, I think uh, it it raises the profile. One thing I have to say is that uh, Bloody Scotland, uh, their uh, press and uh, publicity department are absolutely superb. And if you win, you get, as Robbie knows, uh, from his experiences where you get this fantastic uh, nationwide uh, uh, coverage. Um, but it's, I think, to win, you know, the other two guys have been talking about the long list. The long list this year was daunting. It was amazing. Uh, and I think what it, what it, what it means is, you know, to, to, uh, to be nominated for just to get on the shortlist for for the McIlvany is I, I don't know it's, it's like Brazilian footballer of the year because you know the bar is so yeah. high in Scotland and you know if you if you look at the 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 long list we had Ian Rankin, Val McDermott, uh, you know established names, up and up and uh, coming names like uh obviously Callum and, and Robbie and I think um that that's the thing about the Scottish crime writing scene is it's very very dynamic and you know it's evolving 
all the time. You know, I, I don't think anyone can sort of rest on their laurels. So uh, because there's 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 new new voices, new ways of of exploring the the genre. So being just being on the shortlist for the for the prize is you know it's just fantastic. You know, it makes <laughs> you know when you <laughs> does the self confidence. Uh, a bit of good and you know writers are not famed for being overly endowed with self-confidence yeah and i'm also interested particularly since you've all written books in glasgow at one time or another whether these ones are previous ones what McIlvany, william McIlvany himself kind of is he an inspiration i know uh, robbie you've got a quote from the papers of tony veach at the very beginning of your books, I'm presuming he was an, or he is an inspiration to you, but I wanted to ask all of oh, you, yeah. starting with Robbie, what, you know, McIlvany's writing means. Well, definitely, White, he, he was probably the first, um, and I know, I know McIlvany didn't view himself as a crime writer in any ways, he was just a brilliant writer, but certainly as someone who was younger and grown up reading crime fiction, but I always thought, you know, even in my teens, I always, or, or younger, you always thought, well, all crime fiction is kind of set in America or, you know, that sort of hard-boiled detective or that, you know, it's kind of thriller that writes, but also gives you a social, social commentary and a portrait of the city. And he was the first Scottish writer, obviously, I found um, using the crime genre to actually, you know, ex explore what he wanted to say about the city. Um, and as I say, he would never he would never have thought of himself as actually writing a crime novel as um as he did it, I think. But and apart from that, he is just you can pick up one of his books and read a paragraph or read a sentence and just go, oh, I might as well just <laughs> give up right now. You know, he's just such a, a brilliant writer, which is why I, I used that quote. The um I'm probably not getting it word for word, but for the, the first book, uh, it's as if Glasgow couldn't keep the wryness out of its smile, even at the edge of the grave. I just thought it captured something about, you know, Glasgow's mentality and the gallows humour. <laughs> no, I'm a, yeah, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed myself there. I'm surprised. <laughs> Usually I forget everything. But uh, what about yourself, Craig? I mean, was, was McIlvany an inspiration to you? Yes, I think, I think, uh, I've, a fellow traveler, if, if if you know what I mean, I think the uh, what Robbie was saying, I think, is very true. That, and I always I always feel pompous when I say this, but uh, not so much being not so much a crime writer, but a writer who happens to write crime, and you know a lot of a lot of his fiction was just an exploration of character. And it's you know the, the character of individuals and the character of a place and a time, and I think that's that's something uh, you know he 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 sits there with other authors who instilled in me that that enthusiasm for having a, a location as a character, you know, really nailing the the. The character of of a place, uh, and also telling a human story, uh, and it just happen happens to follow the the arc of a crime story. 
I think thinking what you said, Robbie, um, when I was growing up on my dad's bookshelves, the only Scottish writers would have been a collection of Burns, an unread Walter Scott, and and a Laidlaw or, or the big man or you know one of uh, Macovani's finest. So he, he really did reach into homes, which a lot of Scottish writers had yet to do. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And just to, to echo something Craig was thinking about to go back about the long list and the, the short list. Uh, it's Craig was saying, obviously, we were saying William Michael Barney didn't view himself as a crime writer. And obviously, all the books on the long list were, you know, a, a brilliant showcase for Scottish crime writing. But beyond that, they're just a brilliant showcase of Scottish writing, I think, you know, and it's, uh, and, and, and that's what counts, I think, it's the writing. The genre element of it is, yeah, I, I'm a big secondary, you know. yeah. Yeah, yeah, secondary in many ways, yeah, because it's just good writing, I think. A good story is a good story, no matter what genre you you label it with. You know, that's an interesting point. And and Callum, what about you? Um, did you are you a reader of McIlvany? So I I read Laidlaw after I got longlisted because I felt <laughs> I felt uh, I felt I should. Um, and I was I was blown away by it, and I was kind of kicking myself that I hadn't read him before because I think he like if I read it however many years ago, it would have been like a big influence on my writing. Because uh, I feel like anyone who, who reads Laidlaw now would probably assume that I was already a big fan. You know, I, I, I feel that link is there. Um, but yeah, I just, I, you know, it's it just, I picked up, you know, it was what, the 70s, was it? It was published in, and it's just really fresh. You know, like Robbie said, every, every line is gold, you know, like the actual like sentence by sentence is, is brilliant, was writing is, is great. You know, so yeah. Um they could have been written yesterday almost, you know. It's like all yeah, the great yeah. Ones. Certainly. Yeah. 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 Graham Green as well was another favourite of mine. You know, the prose is just like McIlvany, it's just so fresh and so powerful and concise and elegant. Um but uh yeah, makes me wish I was you know not to aim for that. I think that's interesting, Callum, because I would have thought that you'd read them, but I think that just shows the reach of McIlvany and the influence of McIlvany kind of almost going through other writers and spreading through other writers that even if you haven't yes. read yourself, yeah, you're kind definitely. of I know Rob, Robbie was kind of saying about how, you know, hard-boiled crime seems like it's an American thing, but then you pick up that book and he's written and it's set in Glasgow. And I, I had that that same kind of moment and realisation, but with uh, The Cutting Room by Louise Welsh gave me that same kind of eye-opening moment of it was doing the same kind of hard-boiled, it was, you know, it was glamorous, it was seedy, it was doing all these things, but it was in a location that I knew really well. And so I, I think obviously, yeah, the, the kind of laid law McIlvany stuff is like just filtering through everything, you know? Yeah, I think it's like DNA. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's, he laid a strand of DNA through uh, Scottish crime writing, I think. And I think uh, in some ways it's almost it's like the way you always if you're speaking about crime fiction sort of American crime fiction you always go back to Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler who we should probably mention seen as Denise is just is the new Raymond Chandler <laughs> and, uh, that you could have read many other books without having read Hammett and Chandler but they would have influenced everybody all go through from you know, Michael Connolly, James Elroy, all, all 
the more recent ones, it's like, yeah, it's in the DNA, as Craig probably put it more concisely, actually. I, yeah, that's I th thing as well, because Craig, your book almost feeds into that Americana noir side of things as well, doesn't it? Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I'll I'll try I'll try to be brief here because I get very boring on the subject. But um, there there were ama amazing um, silent movies being made. Uh, that that used uh, German expressionism because so many Germans had escaped the the rise of of Nazism and had uh, had come to uh, Hollywood, and German express expressionism worked really really well uh, in obviously in horror and some of the greatest horror movies and you know movies like Metropolis were great examples of this but these directors sort of drifted you know we talk about dna that german expressionist dna drifted into noir because they start you know people like fritz lang started to make uh, film noir and film noir is the is the natural extension of uh, uh, of german expressionism so I ended up in 1927 Hollywood through two routes, through my love of movies and through my, you know, through my fascination with, with noir, uh, noir fiction. And they sort of, they sort of came together uh, there. And it's, uh, and it is a, a unique, it's a unique environment uh, and a unique time uh, to write about. And, and, just um, the the very definition of of noir, but interestingly, um, you know, we've been talking about Glasgow. When I first came up with uh, the idea of writing the Lennox series, I was trying to find somewhere to set them. Now I used to live next to Glasgow. Uh, um, but I wasn't. I, I didn't really think about setting anything in Glasgow but you know, were talking about the, it being an American tradition I thought what's the most American city in yeah. Europe just about it and Glasgow sort of leapt to the front of the queue because of the architecture you, know, you were talking about the the architecture that a lot of which was was wiped out a lot of the architecture of Glasgow was being put up at the same time as the brownstones on the east coast of of the state, so architecturally it had that look. But I think uh, I think what noir needs always is a smart mouth, and I think <laughs> Glasgow, you know, with Hollywood, have got that because that's what it trades on. But Glasgow was a, a natural location for me for for for. Uh, noir fiction uh, and I think it and, you know uh, it goes back to Willie McIlvany and whatnot I think the the sardonic dry wit lends itself to that that almost American uh, uh, wisecracking and Callum did yeah. you choose Gla sorry did you choose Glasgow 
just because you knew it or because partly of this tradition that it has and for the reasons that Craig mentioned? Um, I mean, I, I've written like quite a few things set in Glasgow because it's like my familiar surrounding. You know, it's a city that I love. I lived there for about 10 years. But Squeaky Clean in particular is because I, I wanted to base it on the car wash that I worked in in Bell Street. Um, I just, I, so, so I did it, I just said it there and I wanted people to talk, like people talked and one of the characters, um, Sean, who's the boss who runs the place is loosely based on my boss who works there. You can go and meet him and you can wash your car if you like, he's still there. Because <laughs> um, he's, he's just, he was just quite a character and I just, I always wanted to write about him. And so like, it's, yeah, na it naturally, I just, I just put it there uh, without too much thought to the kind of noir stuff. But I have always felt, I, th I think just the raininess, the griminess, the sense of humour, the, the, the despair, you know, <laughs> it's, it's all there in Glasgow, you know, and it does, it has both this kind of glamorous side to it and, yeah, the kind of CD underbelly thing. It has, you know, it has lots of different faces and, and a lot of them work for noir. For and, sure. and the smart mouth that Craig was saying, you know, the book's full of yeah. well. And just while we're on it, you know, setting it in real places, I... Has your boss or your ex-boss read it? Does he know that he's represented in the book? I gave him a copy, but I've not been back. <laughs> um, I don't. He's, he's not like a massive reader, but he, he like loves like Sopranos and stuff like that. He's a man. He's really into like um, gangster films and TV shows. So I think he would like it. I do. I like to think that he wouldn't even recognise himself. To be honest with you, <laughs> be able to buy oh. that car wash soon with your royalties, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, probably. Become a car, a car wash magnate, sort of best-selling author. <laughs> have my books on the wall. <laughs> and while we're talking about real people, your your central uh, detective is Alison or Ali McCoyce. And I was wondering, did, did you consider that that might be what the feedback from that would be? Uh, not in the first draft, no. <laughs> I just thought it was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> What, like what, what happened? I just, I was needing a name for my detective, and um, my friend who's a big Rangers fan used to have a goldfish called Coisty, named after Ali McCoist. <laughs> and that that just happened to pop into my head at that moment. I thought I'll, I'll just use that. Then I got to thinking it's kind of a funny name for a detective in Glasgow, and they'd say to go the whole hog and, and call her Alison McCoist because I want I wanted her to have this link with Davy. Davy's always grumbling about customers uh, doing car wash jokes to him, so I thought well then. Ali will have this thing about people making fun of her name. And it's like a kind of a nice wee connection between the two of them. And um, and I, I'm from East Kilbride and so is Ali McCoyst. He's a hometown hero. My grandma was a, an absolute huge Ali McCoyst fan. So there's there all these nice things. And I thought, I'll just go for it. And it ended up, you know, it ended up going all the way to publication. I, I thought maybe at some point it would get removed. But, but you know he, he knows about it and he's fine. He does know about it, yeah. He does, yeah. yeah. I, I, did, I, I was interviewed in The Sun and they got in touch with him to uh, let him know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, bang goes your royalties, Callum. <laughs> that you'll, not be able to buy, you'll not be able to buy the car wash anymore because the next thing you owe me the use of my name. No, I'm always joking. But I, think, I think as long as she doesn't start playing football at any point, I'm good. And Robbie, penalty. what... Did, were, were you, did you think I'm writing in a tradition here when you were writing uh, at the Edge of the Grave in the previous novel? Do you think, yeah, this is the tradition of Makovani and others? Um, I didn't 
not consciously, although I'm aware that when I was writing it, I, um, I wanted it to be a realistic or as realistic a portrayal of a city as you can get in, a, in, in fiction. But at the same time, I did want it to have a little tinge of hard-boiled fiction or or other the whole gangster movies of the 1930s and all the film noir stuff that um, Craig was talking about. So um, I, probably I just love that stuff so much I didn't think too much about it. At one point, I do, I, I do remember when I was quite early on writing, at one point I suddenly realised, oh, my detectives, they'll be wearing trench coats and fedoras. Enough. Like real heroes, I hadn't really thought too much about it, and um, I, I probably hadn't really considered any uh, where McIlvany came in in that respect, purely because I would never have thought to be attempting to, you know, you know, you would never compare yourself to him or any of that sort of uh, or anything like that. So, um, yeah, yes and no is the yes and no is a useless answer to answer your question. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if uh, you guys agree, but I think these things, you know, you've got all of these influences that work on you and these these tones and moods that you you have in your books. But when you're writing, you're not thinking about it. You don't I don't think you consciously try. You you don't think, all right, this this is hard boiled writing or. Uh, you know, or this is going to be very atmospheric. This bit, it I I often say that I think writing is a, a very subconscious thing. I think the more you get into it, because you're know, writing about Glasgow in the 30s, for example, uh, or Hollywood in the 20s. I think you start to live in it in your head and it's it's almost automatic it just you're there and you're not thinking about style you're not thinking about genre you're just walking through a landscape i think no i would agree i mean you're you're just trying to tell the best story you can and yes and and in some ways you're you're just trying to bring it to life and i was also thinking there's quite a lot of real life characters in my books, such as like Chief Constable Percy Silito and Maggie McIver, who, you know, opened up the barras uh, and just quirky characters that I wanted, real life characters that I wanted to put in that you maybe wouldn't get in your regular history books or anything. I wanted yes. to try and but who were a, a huge part of Glasgow life and Glasgow tradition and, and the legend of Glasgow, even, you know, the barras and the barrowlands are, are legendary. So you think, yeah, I'd, I'd like to get. So I, I think more in, I was more intent on in trying to bring it to life, you know, not necessarily 100% historically accurate, but at least, you know, enough that people would believe it. I'm, I hate using the word because I always get it wrong, but verisimilitude is what I'm aiming for um, rather than complete, uh, you know, 100% accuracy, um, if that makes sense. And when you're, while you want to think, yeah, I loved hard-boiled fiction and all those thrillers. And while you, I kind of wanted to be in that tradition, but at the same time, I kind of don't want it to be in that condition because you can do something that's hopefully new and original and and you know adds you know adds something fresh to it. Hopefully, yes, yeah. 
absolutely. No, I think what it's interesting, I'm going to misquote him, but John Le Carre, you know, because everybody said about, oh, this is obviously authentic. This is how the spy world must must be. And of course it isn't, it's, it's fiction. And uh, he said, my job isn't to be authentic. My job is to be credible. And I think that's mm. that's important that, you know, you, you create a world, you know, it, as, as accurate as possible, but it's more that the readers can believe in it. You know, they, they find it a credible world. Um, you see that, Callum, about the car washing world. That you, you, you know, it, people who have done that job as you have, it's more about capturing the verisimilitude, as, as Robbie says, rather than the accuracy, which is probably yeah. Cool. Tell me, like, it, yeah, it was just I just wanted to put in enough kind of detail to make it feel real, like so anyone reading it will feel like, well, that's that must be what it's like to wash a car. You know, like you can imagine, yeah, it's not a, it's not, it's not like being a spy, so it's not like it's much more relatable, you know. But yeah, I think it's just you get enough almost mundane detail to just to kind of build the image so that it feels real, you know. Um, and it was when I had to, I had to obviously when I uh, an er, earlier drafts was mostly just car wash stuff. So when I I started kind of punch it was yeah it was it was that stage where it was like is it a crime novel or is it just guys chatting? Yeah, you know for like hundred pages. So I like uh, so when I got more into the police procedural stuff and I also had to I don't know anything about that so I had to speak to some people and read some books and but when it came to that I was kind of like what I really want is just the kind of small mundane details to make it to make it feel right as opposed to it being 100 this is how an investigation runs because i mean i've got like ali mccoy's running about doing whatever by herself and i think a lot of the stuff she does is probably illegal in some way or another because yeah. it's just kind of flying by the seat of her pants you know surveilling people without permission and all this sort of stuff it doesn't really come up i think yeah. it's really well like you know using the torn t-shirts as rags uh, yeah, what, it's... what shocked me more than I think the violence was how filthy some people's cars get. Oh, it's disgusting, <laughs> man. I used to always be like, like I cannot fathom how gross it is. But I, I didn't drive then. I didn't have a car. Now I have a car. I have two children and my car is disgusting. And I fully understand it. <laughs> and, uh, Robbie, one of the things I love about Edge of the Grave is that history aspect, is the kind of detail that you go into about the gangs, the different areas, all of that stuff. So, it feels like there's quite a bit of research has gone into it. Is that the case? Or did you just know? Oh, yeah, no. Yes, and over the years, plenty of plenty of research, plenty of just wading through, you know, Percy Silito's memoirs, history books, anything you can you can get. And obviously, you know, um, from my own family history as well, as my which my dad compiled has been lots of little um stuff like um. I, I use Jimmy Dreghorn, the, the lead character. Some of his background is based on my grandfather, who um, used to box for um, Survivor Colhoun, whose family owned much of Loch Lomond. Um, back in those days, he used to have stables of, of athletes. My grandfather used to box for him. He also worked in black squads uh, in the shipyard all along the River Clyde. But the one we detail, and this was my dad who put it in... Um, the, the family history that he wrote up was that when in the shipyards when you were you were doing welding, uh, this was before there was any like safety goals or anything. So every now and again, sparks would go in um, the workers' eyes, and obviously that's just like a tiny tiny piece of metal. 
So what was, my grandfather was the eye man in the shipyard, so they would go to my grandfather with this because it got painful, and he he developed a way of just sharpening a matchstick, and I mean, it sounds oh. makes my eyes water, um, and turning turning the worker's eyelid out with the matchstick and removing the, the little piece of metal. Now, you wouldn't have found that, you'd be unlikely to find that in a history book anywhere, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm also lucky in that my my other half, Deborah, is a, a Marvel Comics trained editor and is big in social history and quite you know her her even though she was born in London, her her mum was from Glasgow, her dad was a Geordie, but she's been fascinated by the social history of Glasgow as well and quite a lot of you know so a lot of, you know there's been a lot of research and sort of input and insight behind the scenes where she's gone off and you know and found me interesting or, or another angle that I wouldn't have possibly picked up on myself you know um like some of the suffragette stuff that was in the first book it was in there you know she was push you should develop that you should get it you know you should bring it to the floor more so it's like yeah probably any 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 amount of depth or anything like that is, is probably down to her I'm just all the Car chases and punch ups is <laughs> left to me. That's not what it would be, probably. Uh, and Craig, how do you approach researching your book, The Devil's Playground? Where do you even begin? Well, to be honest, a lot of it was was there beforehand because you know, I'm a huge fan of of film and the the history of film. Um, but also you know, again, as 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 Robbie said, there's always social history behind behind these things, and just the the sudden explosion of Hollywood at that time, quite simply be, because after the First World War, the the Danish, German, Italian, French film industries that had been leading the world were were uh, wiped out, and I just find I just I just find the history of of Hollywood and what it what the impact that it still has on on our lives today. I, I find that fascinating and just you know just love the stories and the because it was such a it was it was a world completely unto itself with its own rules and um, you know. It, and at that time, it was uh, it was incredible that there were more people of color, and there were more women working in every level of filmmaking uh, than there are today. You know, in the the nineteen wow. twenties, uh, as opposed to the the twenty twenties. So it was just a fascinating time to to explore, and you know that. There were a lot of people that are icons in our culture who were absolute monsters and sort of delving into that. Charlie Chaplin, my God, what a what a monster. Yeah, and you know, just and his brother was even worse. Um yeah. and it just the 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 power uh and that these these obviously predominantly men had. And the abuse of that power, uh, I find I find that just amazing to to research, and it helps you. And you know, I always say that writing about 
the past helps me understand the the present. So, you know, uh, you know, Harvey Weinstein wasn't an aberration. He was just the last yeah. of a long line, a long yeah. tradition. Um, so I just, I just found it, uh, found it amazing. But I, I really do get into the, into the research. I have to say, I, I love researching the fashions and the cars and all of that kind of stuff. You know, and then that's what gives just tied then walking around wearing what. Evening suits and stuff like this, and fedoras, <laughs> and check, checking them all out, nineteen thirty style, in a full length mirror. Yeah, well, yeah, actually, I don't know if I can bring it over. I, I bought this this phone when I, <laughs> I bought yeah. that, this phone when I was uh, researching it, and I tried using it, but and it's it's connected, uh, but. Uh, no one uses the landline anymore. So. <laughs> and uh, you do have a couple of fedoras over your shoulder, so I think Robbie. Right? I do. Yes, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a great just, fedora yeah, wearer. What you can yeah. <laughs> uh, weaving a Panama hat? I spy. Oh yeah, probably yes. Yeah, no, um, and there's a cowboy hat as well. Yeah, I like hats. <laughs> We've all got one of them, though, haven't we? <laughs> And the idea of the lost film, Craig, that something about that rings a bell with me. Was it based on a real uh, situation that there's a, a some kind of cursed film that's out there somewhere? Well, there there are so many lost movies yeah. uh, because the silver nitrate that films were made on, um, it, it, to, to describe them as flammable is an understatement they they would spontaneously combust if the temperature got above a, a certain level they would just catch fire um and they burned in a way they had enough captive oxygen in the film that you could put them in a bucket of water and they would still burn underwater so that's what silent movies were were filmed on and that's why I can't remember what the percentage is. It's only about 10% of, of silent movies have survived. And I do reference some of the big studio fires. Studios were always going up and archives lost. And London After Midnight with uh, Lon Chaney is one of these. I, you know, my researcher says that he's also been offered a vast amount of money to to find out so that is uh that's uh, a lost movie that uh no one has ever been able to get a print from and let's move on to talking about famous sorry robbie on you go oh really different because i think it was in the 50s but there's the famous orson wells version of dead cam that is locked up in a vault somewhere never to be seen Obviously, Dead Cam was based as a on a Cornell Woolrich novel or something like that. I think. Ah, right, right. I don't know. I don't, I don't know that one. No, that's that's interesting. Yeah, for legal problems, obviously, it, well, I didn't burn them, but for legal problems, it's been locked up for never seen the light of day. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Um, the it's it's interesting with a lot of the movies they haven't fallen into public. Some of them haven't fallen into public domain, and it's because of 
they can be tied up in in copyright issues and that kind of thing. Um, uh, but no, no, it was fascinating to write about. Uh, I want to move on to Bloody Scotland itself and hear about your experiences and what you're kind of looking forward to. Callum, is this your first? Have you been before? Yeah, it's my first. I've never been before. So I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to the whole weekend and the torchlight procession. I'm a little bit worried about <laughs> carrying a, a massive flaming torch. But yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to the whole weekend. I'm uh, going to see you. Yeah. It could be a way to get rid of your rivals, though, couldn't it? So just... <laughs> Yeah, you probably easily make it look like an accident, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I've got, I, I've, I've got to be honest. I took part in one of the torchlight uh, parades, and I was talking to uh, Michael Redpath, the the author. And at one point, he was slapping me heartily on the back. I thought, oh, <laughs> he was actually putting my jacket out because one of his <laughs> an ember had come down on me. No, <laughs> wow. Yeah, it always struck me as a kind of dangerous idea, but but there you are, Robbie. What are you looking forward to about it? Um, well, obviously I've been twice. The first time I went, I actually won an award. The second time I'm going, I've been nominated for one. So as far as I'm concerned, Bloody Scotland's the best crime writing festival <laughs> out there. I don't I don't care if you all call me a big sook or not. Um, no, I'm really looking forward to it. I find that it, it it's. It's a really relaxing. It's great to meet, you know, your fellow fellow authors, and it's always great to meet the readers, of course, because that's where, yeah, you always think without the readers, then there's, you know, we wouldn't be sitting here doing that. They're the most, they're the most important part of the process ultimately, towards the end of it. So it's great to meet them and to get their takes on, you know, the books you've written and 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 how they've taken to them. I always think writing, because my background is coming from writing comic books, which is, you know, it's a very visual medium, so everything's sort of on the page, the characters are drawn, the, so the artist has already put it in the page, but what's nice with books is that the reader, every reader probably has a different idea of what your character looks like in their head because they imagine it for themselves, which I think is a wonderful thing. There's no other medium can um, you know, no other medium does that so well. Um, because I think I was reading um Stephen King's on writing again recently, and he yeah. describes it as like a form of telepathy when you've written your book and it goes out and they're reading it. Maybe a very delayed form of telepathy, but you know you're putting your story out in your head, and you know that might be slightly pretentious or not, but I, I quite I, I I quite like the sound of it. I quite kind of agree. You know, I, I I agree with that because I think it's it's actually the, the writer-reader relationship is actually very intimate because your mind is engaging directly with the reader's mind. And it kind of get you kind of forget that because there are all of the, the pro steps in publication and that kind of thing. But it is and so when you talk to when you bloody Scotland, when you get to to talk to uh, readers, it's 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 great to get mm -hmm. feedback and you know yeah. you know find out what people have have got from yeah. from writing. But the the other thing I would say about Bloody Scotland is it is great just to be able to talk with other authors um, because you know it's a strange job. 
mm. and it's a solitary job you know you're on your own and um you know you sometimes you sometimes think you're a bit odd you're a bit strange and then it's nice to meet other people who <laughs> are, are equally odd, are equally odd. Think you're a bit odd but i think <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they agree with me. Yeah, you are. Yeah, being too yeah. polite to say it, possibly. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I, I, as a reader, I love these festivals for that very reason that you do get to have the, maybe the burning question that you've had after reading a book answered by the the writer uh, themselves. I think that is a huge part of it. Uh, you know, yes. I, I probably suggest perhaps the most important uh, part of it too. And so. In terms of um, what you're going to, you've all got, Callum, you're going to be on the debut panel uh, mm. there. Um, Craig, are you on anything else, Callum, or is it just that's the one? No, just the debut panel, and I'm just going to be uh, going to see lots of other stuff. And, and Craig, what about yourself? What are you doing at the, the festival? It's on the Sunday. I'm on a panel with Liam McIlvany, delighted to say. So, um, we're, First time that we'll actually have talked uh, face to face. We've uh, talked, you know, via social media, but of course he's usually on the other side of the world. So it's going to be really nice just to to chat away with with him. Yeah, and Robbie, are, are you attending? And what are you looking forward to in that sense? Um, we are. I'm just added again the social side of it's great there's a few i have to actually to be honest i have to go through the brochure a bit more and and check it out i'll be definitely going to see craig and liam however um which i'll be looking forward to that um and i'm on on another panel with grant morrison who's a you know fairly legendary comics writer and um grant has just written their first novel as well which is uh um which we're on together, and but what's interesting is our novels are wildly different. So it'll be an it'll be an interesting. It should be an interesting panel, you know. But obviously, our background is both in, in comics, and so I presume we'll be talking about that background. But then talking about the differences between writing for comics and moving into writing for for novels, um, the differences between the medium. Um, so I'm I'm really looking forward to it. it. Should be, should be great. And of course, the the prize giving and the Torchlight procession, even though I'm well, I'm now suddenly <laughs> wary. I'm trying to think, what have I got that's fireproof that I can <laughs> fashionable and fireproof? Yeah, and watch that new haircut when you get it. You know, <laughs> yeah, no. And uh, when I spoke to Callum previously, we were discussing how there does seem to be a real camaraderie in the crime writing community, if I can call it that. Is that something that you would all agree with, Craig? Let's start with yourself. Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, I, I think uh, it's it, it can be like a self-help group. I was talking about uh, Michael Ridpath going way, way back. Uh, I remember I was having uh, problems, you know, the third book that is all, can sometimes be the, the one that, yeah, a lot of people have a problem with the second book, but the third book. But I remember uh, Michael was 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 great, you know, with sage advice and that. And there's always, you know, that's what I was saying. You know, people who people who share the same 
challenges the same problems or have you know and it's it's very it's very supportive it's not a it's not a competitive environment if if you know what i mean i think um there's there's a lot of solidarity between between writers uh generally uh, crime writers uh obviously i mean i've i've heard i've heard stories that historical fiction you know you <laughs> they they have it in for each other but i don't i don't believe that uh but but no, I've always found it very, very supportive, and um, it just nice to be able to talk to someone else who's uh, going through the same experiences at different stages in in their their mm. career. And Robbie, is that something you've found as well? I know. Oh, I would definitely, um, I mean, shoot me for using this phrase, but um, we're all in it together, everybody, you know, you understand the good and the bad of the of, of the business, or well, I'm beginning to learn the good and the bad. I mean, Craig has just given me a, a little bit of nugget there where he says, sometimes you can have problems with the third novel. And like, oh. <laughs> I can see the face going, oh no! <laughs> Um, so it might just be third, fourth, fifth, you know, <laughs> it could, could be all of them. Um, um, I also think, obviously, my background is working in comic books, and there's the same sort of camaraderie amongst the writers and artists and colorists there. So I'd like to think it's just creative communities, for want of a better yeah. um, phrase. Quite often, you know, they're, they're supportive and they want they want people to, you know, do well and 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 succeed. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's the, sure there's the odd bad apple here and there, but I'm glad to see I haven't encountered any yet. And Callum, when we spoke uh, about the debut prize shortlist, you could tell already that all of the shortlisted writers had bonded and you know were really kind of supporting each other as well. So have you found quickly that that has been the case? Yeah, certainly. I mean, we all met at the at the program launch a few months ago, um, and I've just kind of kept in touch since then. It's it's just it's really great um, meeting other people who are just like at the same stage, uh, who you know just had their book out and they're trying to figure out what they're doing next if they're working on something or, you know, getting to talk to someone about all this stuff. You know, if you're stuck or not stuck or whatever. You know, it's uh, just yeah, just that's really nice. Because, uh, you know, yeah, because it can be kind of solitary and it's kind of a, to talk about some of this stuff with someone who isn't in publishing or doesn't write is kind of tricky to explain, I think, you know, the kind of trials and tribulations. It doesn't really, doesn't, it's not easy to, to, to describe. So like for people who are already involved in it and understand the kind of, the difficulties and yeah, it's been really good. Well, I have to say, I could talk to all of you for so much longer and maybe I will in the future, but... <laughs> For now, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with me. My pleasure. Thank you. And Thanks also, and also uh, the best of luck to, to all of you uh, in terms of the prize and the future. And do stay tuned, listeners, because I'll be talking to Denise Mina about her shortlisted book, The Second Murderer, and most likely a whole lot more. <laughs> And I'm joined now by the fourth writer on the McIlvanny Prize shortlist, 
Denise Mina. Hello, Denise. Hello, how are you? I'm really well. I'm really well. Thanks for joining me. And congratulations on making the shortlist. Oh, my, I'm astonished. Um, so before we go any further, I think it'd be nice to give our listeners a synopsis on The Second Murderer, your nominated book. Well, it's um, The Second Murderer is a Raymond Chandler continuation novel. So the estate asked me if I'd be interested in writing a Philip Marlowe book. And uh, if you don't know Raymond Chandler, he's basically a blue collar detective in LA in the late 30s, early 40s. He's uh, works on his own. He's got his own value system. He drives around in a car. You know, there's a lot of dames. He fancies everyone. Everyone fancies him. He hasn't got a lot of money. Everyone must be quite smelly. There's a lot of money in LA. There's also a lot of poverty in LA. But I mean, I'm absolutely amazed for an estate novel to be shortlisted is incredible. And the McIlvany Prize have been so kind to me because um, a lot of the times I'm doing things that don't quite fit the usual kind of format and they're always very open and inclusive to that, you know. So, I mean, to be on the shortlist, I've already won for me because yeah. for an estate novel to be on the shortlist is really amazing. And it's interesting you say that because I think not just the shortlist, but the long list itself shows how inclusive and kind of eclectic yeah. crime writing is at the moment. Would you agree with that? I think not all crime writing is. I'll be yeah. honest with you. You know, there are some lists that are very, are you dum-de-dum meeting these beat points? And then there are others like the McIlvany that are just very, um, uh, just like really interested in the form and changing the form and broadening the categories of the form. So, I mean, I think the McIlvany is a bit special. Yeah, and that's that's what strikes me looking through the, the books and, and talking to, to the writers is that you've got this um, real, uh, you know, you've got uh, uh, Robbie Morrison's is, is kind of historical Glasgow, Callum McSorley's is contemporary modern day, and then you've got uh, another kind of Hollywood set one with uh, Craig, Craig Russell's book as well, which we spoke about Michael Vanney himself and how we didn't think he would consider himself a crime writer as such, just as a writer, and that's what he touched upon. How do you view, your, do you think of yourself as a crime writer, or is it that categorization for other people to make? Um, I mean, I think we take these things too seriously. Yeah. You know, I do, but it's not, you know, I mean, the urge to categorize things, it gives you the theory of evolution, but it also gives you eugenics. So you have to be careful with it. But I mean, ultimately, it's just a tale, yes. you know? And, and if it makes people feel more comfortable with having an opinion about whether it's good or bad, I'm a crime writer. Do you know what I mean? I think people come, if people think they're reading a crime writer, they're much more entitled, they're much more opinionated. They're like, that's rubbish. This is good. I know. Whereas if you say it's, it's literary writing, people are like, well, maybe it is good. I don't know. I don't have a degree. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I, I mean? have never thought about it that way, but yeah, we are probably <laughs> absolutely right. I'm in a I'm in a comfort zone here, and therefore, but I think what Bloody Scotland does in general, but the McIlvany Prize seems to do, is almost play around with that. So you've got novels that could be horror, that could be literary, you know, in another sense, and says, well, or sci-fi, yeah, yeah. sci-fi, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it's becoming a kind of alternative. Uh, uh, you know, in the way that like the Gordon Byrne has become a bit of an alternative booker. Yeah. It, when the categorizations or the admin of art becomes so rigid that it no longer reflects what the original intention was, 
I mean, like in the States, you have some, um, you know, book prizes that are basically, are you cosplaying the, the originators of this form? Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the, something else always comes in to take the place. And I think Michael Barney's taken a really interesting position. And, uh, I mean, you've, you've won it previously. Is That's right. Yeah. I've won it twice. Well, there um, you go. Well, I won it the first time for the long drop. And the second time, I didn't really win it. But Manda Scott said she would share it with all the people on the shortlist because she didn't agree with literary prizes. And everybody else was like, I had a lot of opinions about that. But I was like that. That means I can say I've won it twice because that's how cheap I am. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Manda. That's fantastic. <laughs> but that, that's interesting because I know uh, speaking to musicians and there's a lot of obviously music prizes. I think the Mercury was even last night that some of them are uncomfortable with the idea of prizes for making music. You know, um, the Scottish Album of the Year Award is a good example. Some people say, don't put my album on that. I don't want to be competitive. But from my point of view, it gets writers into, well, it gets listeners new music and it gets uh, writers into new readers' hands. That's how I think about it. What do you think? I think it's really important not to take it too seriously. There's a, there's a, a philosopher called Alistair McIntyre who uh, wrote a book called After Virtue, and he's very clear about this. And, and for me, it really cleared it up. And he said, you know, obviously you can't compete, you can't weigh and measure music and say this is two degrees better than that music. It's silly. Um, and there are, there's also, you know, the reader response in reading where the person who's reading it brings a prism. So I've read terribly badly written true crime books that were high art because of the prism through which I was reading them at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, so you can't really measure up. But at the same time, exactly what you're saying, those superstructures of administration are very important so that it becomes a profession and yeah. it isn't just a hobby. And it isn't you don't only hear about people who've got lots of money to promote themselves. And, you know, and you have to. I mean, I've been a judge on lots of prizes and, you know, and the reason I did that is because I think in the end, although it is a really important marketing tool for lots of people that you wouldn't hear of otherwise. And I was going to ask you what the practical kind of benefits of winning something like the McIlvani is. Do you notice it? Yeah, you notice it in sales. You notice it in the fact that you've got something to talk about other than here's another book that, you know, isn't written by a man <laughs> quite often, you know. Um, uh, you notice it in the way that, you know, I mean, I notice it when I'm looking for people to read. To be honest with you, I will look at somebody and think, well, they've won all that. It can't be shite. They can clearly put a sentence together. Not so much that, you know, this is brilliant or anything like that. Just that, you know, they can clearly spin a tail and I'm not going to reach, I'm not going to invest 500 pages and then it turns out it's just a bunch of old rubbish, you know? Yeah. So it's a matter of faith. I think it gives you faith in something of it. And also that's where the importance of a judging panel comes in because they are hopefully filtering to some extent, you know, and, and if you... I'll tell you this, being a judge, being a judge on a prize with a lot of entries, like 300 entries, the, the long list, um, it, it presents itself because there's a lot of rubbish out there and a lot of badly written rubbish. And I mean, I, I'm sure you come across it sometimes, but it's really startling when you're reading a book by somebody who can't really write. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? It re it's really staggering. And you're just kind of like, how did this get, oh, you know, so-and-so. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, how did that really? You know, and and these things are actually getting put. Oh, you're somebody's uh, husband, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then the 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 long list will often just present itself, and it's like if you read the whole Booker, if you read a lot of the Booker books, some of them are just garbage. I mean, really word salad nonsense, and uh, and the long list is usually really good books that are in this area, you know. Um, so I think it does help you sort of filter those things out, Ariva. I mean, I'm saying that, but I've won prizes. And now, had I never won a prize, would I feel that way? Yeah. Do you know? So it's worked for me. It's been yeah. a great, you know, it's been a great um, affirmatory thing for me. But I don't know if I would feel that way if I hadn't won. And maybe I'm kind of justifying my luck. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't feel that way if I hadn't won stuff. I'd think I was too ahead but- of the game for... But I mean, as you say, even something like the McIlvany Prize, which has got such a kind of prestige, I think even being shortlisted has kind of you know will be a, yeah. a thing. I think, and and it goes back Massive. that we spoke about with uh, uh, Callum, Craig, and Robbie is that there does seem to be a camaraderie within crime writers that they're really kind of yeah. all rooting for each other. It's so lovely. I mean, I spoke to the five uh, or five of the debut prize list. Um, shortlisted people as well, and they were so kind of wanting to promote each other's books rather than their own. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And you know, why can't it be like that? You know what I mean? Why should we be vying with one another? As if there is only one reader, it's silly. You know, why can't we be collegiate? Why can't we be lateral? Why can't we be influenced and inspired by people who are alive now? Yeah. Why has it always got to be someone who's dead? Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It's like, you know, there's a kind of parsimoniousness to it that it's the model of genius in the arts that there can be only one. It's like Highlander, you know, there can only be one good one and everybody else is just a prelude to that. That's absolute nonsense. That's not how we experience art. It is collegiate and it is, you know, a a collective um, communal kind of experience. And writing is exactly the same. It's got your name on it, but it is a collective work always. You know, and it's that's not just the editors and the typesetters. It's also the other writers who said to you, "No, you can do it. Go on, get up on stage." And do you know what I mean? Uh, you know, um, and it's uh, you know, I think that could bleed out from crime writing to other areas of fiction where you know it's not a competition to see who's the special boy. Yeah, and other people that you've read or that the writers that you're influenced by have read. So I was talking about William McIlvany and his influence as well. And uh, Callum had said, oh, I, had, I, I read Laidlaw once I got on the shortlist because I'd never read any McIlvany. Right. That's really surprising to me because you can almost feel the genetics, if you like, coming through. But it would have been writers, I suppose, that he would have read who have read McIlvany that then that kind of... Do you think that's right? Do you think... And Were you a fan of his, of, of his himself? McIlvany? Yes. Well, I worked in the chip, Alistair, so right. I knew who everybody was because yeah. I worked in the bar. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I had read Laidlaw and I had loved Laidlaw, but I mean, I think what he, I think what McIlvany did is a bit zeitgeisty. That's, well, that was the genius of Laidlaw, yeah. was that is how people speak in Glasgow, particularly at that time. You know, there's a lot of out the side of them. Everyone thought they were in a Bogart movie. Yeah. You're a bit younger than me. You don't really remember this, but it was a real kind of model, that kind of Humphrey Bogart thing. It was a real model for blue collar guys who who had an internal life to express it through this detective guy medium. 
So that's really what, because, you know, McIlvaney's life was not crime writing. He was just no. a writer. He was yeah. a literary writer. And I think that that was what he really bossholds was that genius that, you know, a lot of the language that we use in Glasgow, janitor, you don't hear that anywhere else. It's not yeah. an affectation. We say janitor. A lot of that stuff is from Chandler, from Hammett, from those those kind of, um, you know, noir kind of American movies and stuff. So, I mean, I think, you know, that, that, that um, you know, shooting the cuffs and all that, that I think all of that stuff is what um, Michael Vanny put in Laidlaw. And it is just in the culture. It's just seeped through the culture. So sometimes people look as if they're doing Michael Vanny, but they're not. They're just representing the culture they see around them. Yeah. I think that's you know? true. And I, I mean, I, I was also working in, in bars and restaurants from a young age. And I do remember the guys who on like a Friday, Saturday would be suited and booted. You know, they'd been working all week, but would be absolutely immaculate going out. And there was that kind of swagger with the shoulders going on as they came through. Yeah, you know, and, uh, you know, not being embarrassed that you're working class, that's a thing to be proud of. You know, you don't need to apologise. I mean, actually, a lot of middle class people pretended to be working class. When I moved up from London, it was the height of Thatcher. I couldn't take it anymore. And in London, everyone pretended to be middle class. And in, in Glasgow, everyone pretended to be working class. And I thought, well, this is a better lie. <laughs> it's a more laudable I, social you, fiction. You've maybe answered this, but we were speaking uh, about why Glasgow seems to be such a great setting for crime, but it may touch into all those things you've just mentioned. I mean, you've obviously written novels in Glasgow yourself. Why do you think it is such a, a kind of uh, a city which almost embraces noir, if you like? It is quite a noir city. It is very dark. It has the darkness and the light. You know, there's a broad, um, uh, you know, social divide. I mean, we don't talk about the social divide in Glasgow. I think that's a really Protestant thing. And the reason for that are social divisions. And I think one of the reasons for that is because people are rightly embarrassed about the, you know, yeah. bifurcation in social income because it's the poorest place in Britain. And also there's a lot of money there. Do you know what I mean? And, um, uh, and, but I mean, I think that it is about tradition and the way people see themselves. I mean, I, I, you know, one of the things that always strikes me about Glasgow is everyone you meet is the central character. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how to unpack that. Yeah. But you never meet anyone in Glasgow who's like a side character or a... <laughs> no. well, the, the star of their own movie. <laughs> I'm in my own biopic. Everyone's yeah. in their own biopic. <laughs> that's true, yeah. There is a kind, but that, but that is kind of like your your um your life matters, and I think that is about socialism, and I think it is about the legacy of socialism, is there are no uh, uh, side shows, mm. and and that is what noir depends upon is each scene stands in and of itself. When you read Hammett and you read Chandler, maybe because they were so drunk, they, they their scenes don't fit together very well. And they're very, almost Brechtian in that each scene stands on its own. And I think that is a very Glasgow attitude as each Friday stands on its own in and of yeah. itself, not to be adjudicated by another day. <laughs> no, that, you know? that's, that is really, absolutely. That was that was the weekend and then I've got the next one and it's a completely different thing. And whatever happened there, there might be reasons why I can't remember what happened, but you know, <laughs> I leave that in the past. Yeah. Um, so, and I think also it's very beautiful. That's another thing. It's like yeah. it's startling and unseen, which you know, place is so important in noir, 
and uh, and Glasgow still feels like people people are surprised by Glasgow all the time. You know? Yeah, because I think it was Robbie who was talking about the importance of architecture, and not just the stuff that's still there, but the stuff that's been taken away as well. Void uh, so, in space, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, but how did you approach then setting the second murderer in well, in LA? Um, another noir city in a different way, but it's got that, the darkness and the light that you talk about. Did you have to research the place? Did you have to really kind of understand the place to do it? Well, it's so interesting because um, the place isn't there anymore. Mm. I mean, I spend time in LA, but that's not LA anymore. Uh, and they, you know, they flattened Bunker Hill and all that. It's so well documented. And, and I, I, you know, I wanted to take that character to places that he had never been. And there are so many areas of LA that he never went to. So he, you know, he visited Bunker Hill very briefly. Actually, Chandler lived in Bunker Hill at one point okay. when he was young. And uh, he um, he never, uh, you know, he was racist, Chandler. So he never went into, you know, never spent time particularly with people of colour, you know, as friends or as um, informants. Um, and but you know there's loads of documentary um, uh, evidence of that's available online because I wrote it during lockdown. Mm -hmm. So they, somebody people kept putting movie cameras in cars and driving around LA at that time. It's all silent, right. but it's 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 not difficult to um, uh, find out what was the what the layout was or what the history is because it's just there's so much available. There are brilliant maps of every place anything happens in a Chandler book available online because there's so many kind of real aficionados, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, I mean, it wasn't hard to document at all, but it was kind of the atmosphere that was quite hard to sort of get. And was that daunting? As you say, there's a lot of aficionados, Philip Marlowe fans. Was that daunting to take <laughs> that on? Everything's daunting to take on. Yeah, it was daunting. <laughs> it was daunting. But, um, you know, I wrote a Hellblazer um, uh in 2005 mm -hmm. and that was more daunting because you know comic people who like Chandler are one thing but comic book fans are another thing and so you think well you know you're either going to hide behind the sofa for the rest of your life or you're just going to do it I mean I think some people didn't like the fact that he listened to women that he spent time with gay people because he was very homophobic I don't think the character's homophobic I think Chandler was homophobic and um, and also you know it's quite a radical take on it it's not yeah. a straightforward take on it at all and um i made him the man i wanted him to be and um uh and you know there was a review in the washington post and i think the person said i you know i can't get on board with this at all and uh, uh it was quite a negative review and I, and i sent an email to my publishers they were like oh i'm so sorry hope you're okay and i sent them uh, an email saying well you know there's always going to be some people have this but you know what i've got the mic now so fuck them <laughs> <laughs> And that is it. I've got the right. that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, You're entitled to your opinion. Sit yeah. down and shut up. <laughs> yes. your opinion, it just happens to be the wrong one. <laughs> Who said that? Who was it said that? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm sure I've heard Mark Kermode saying something like that. So oh, okay. Right, okay. Um, so going to Bloody Scotland, what are your experiences of, of Bloody Scotland? And are you going to be there this year? Are you attending? I am going to be there on the Saturday. 
uh, at doing an event with Karen Smirnoff, who's written a continuation novel for the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, oh, right. which oh, and nice. it's brilliant. And and I wrote um, the Millennium trilogy as a series of graphic novels, so we'll have loads to talk about there. And I'm also going to be there on the for the prize giving and the Walk of Fire. I don't know if you've seen pictures of the Walk of Fire, have you? Well, we were talking about this uh, with the guys earlier, and Craig Russell said that he was doing it previously and he thought another writer was patting him on the back, but he was putting out flames because he's, <laughs> he's caught in <and> fire. <laughs> so it looks, and, and I know Callum in particular is quite worried about it. So, uh, yeah. Well, I hope this goes, uh, yeah, well, I won't say to Callum, but it, it doesn't seem safe. <laughs> so I was there with Val and Ian one year and there was a kid who was really out of control and uh, and his mum was going, oh, don't do that. And he was swinging his fire around everywhere. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I will never mess up. I will never pass up the opportunity to self-immolate. So I'm, de I'm definitely going to But it's, you start at the top and you've all got things. You start at the top of the hill and you think, what is the point of this? It's not even done. But the time you get to the bottom of the hill with a pipe band, I must say, yeah. it is pitch black. You can see nothing but fire looking back behind you. There's a pipe band there, and it is just, it is a really amazing experience. You know, it like is an amazing to march on England. Oh, bring out the monster. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Bring the monster out. I didn't, I thought it was just the writers. So the general public also gets access to fire. They pay to do it. So you look up, and it's a very narrow exit from the castle, right? You look back up and uh, it is a river of fire going all the way up to the castle in the pitch black. Wow. It, it's an amazing sight and the sun goes down as you walk down the hill. So by the time you get to the bottom, you're in the pitch dark looking back at a river of fire with a brilliant pipe band playing. Who, I mean, I would follow a pipe band into hell, to be honest with you. And uh, I find, I love the pipe so much. And uh, but it is an amazing sight. It is an absolutely amazing sight. And to be part, to be at the front of it is really incredible. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? To be at the front of it with your pals, it feels like someone's put this on for us because we all really love danger, pipes, and dark. <laughs> and, and I've had nights out in Stirling on a Friday night. That does seem like a dangerous kind of combination. <laughs> a wee bit less fire, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Denise, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Alistair, it's an absolute pleasure. And the McElvaney Prize winner will be announced on Friday the 15th, so look out for that. I hope you've enjoyed these Bloody Scotland podcasts and you'll check out all the writers and their books. And we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Cheers. <laughs>